Welcome to the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Joe and Ron are self-proclaimed teacher nerds geeking out on all things education. They are looking to move educational practices out of the 1900s factory worker model to a student-driven classroom full of empathetic, creative, and collaborative students willing to take risks. Join them as they chat with educators from around the world, discussing educational tools, techniques, ideas, policies, and much more. Thank you for listening and becoming one of the Teacher Nerds. And now a word from a sponsor. In this episode of the Teacher Nerds podcast, Joe and Ron chat with Dr. Eileen Winokur, educator, podcaster, and author of Journey to Belonging, Pathways to Wellbeing. We talk about what belonging is, personal belonging, and fostering belonging in your classroom. Well, let's get into the show. Have you heard about the nerds? What's the word? Teacher nerds. You can tweet them out on Twitter. You can find them on the gram. After listening to their podcast, you'd be sitting there like, bam! Trying to take the teaching from one level to the next. Reaching up to Canada and down to Mexico. Gotta go. Teacher nerds. Start the show. Welcome back to another episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. I'm Ron Nober. I'm Joe DiPaolo. I am a technology teacher for third grade to eighth grade. And I teach third grade. And today, our guest coming all the way from Kuwait is Eileen Winokur. Welcome, Eileen. Thank you, Ron and Joe. I'm so excited to be here. Yeah, Joe and I were guests on on your show a little while back, Mm -hmm. and uh, it's nice to have you on our show. Yeah, it's fantastic. Yours was actually the first, I think, and maybe only show that I've done with two people on it simultaneously. So it was really awesome. Yeah, yeah, you hold a a special place in my podcast heart. (laughs) (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Alone in our own category. Yeah, right. There you go. (laughs) So we're going to jump into our, our icebreaker that we do. Two yes more is one no way. Our category today is historical eras to live in it's time for two yes more one no way a lot of thought went into this i think for for all of us so my two yeses and i i had a i really had to think about this and my two yeses really get based on what my no way is Mm. so it's it's I, i had to think about it in that fashion. Um, my two yeses, one is the 1920s. Um, and I think that holds kind of a, a special place right now because it was coming out of a pandemic, right? It was coming out of the, mm-hmm. the flu epidemic of the 1918, um, you know, influenza. So I think having that, you know, to see what, what happened in the 1920s, and what you know possibly could happen with us coming out of the pandemic was an interesting you know era to live in and then one because the other one because of music and i think there was at least in the united states was a era of kind of a a big boom was like the late 1940s to early 1950s um there was you know a big boom in you know music and a change in music and i think a change in a lot of people's mentalities and, you know, 
I just thought it was a, an interesting era to live in. Now, both of those were based on my no way. And part of it was I, without glasses, cannot know <laughs> any of like the Middle Ages or any of those eras where glasses were not readily available. I don't know that I would have wanted to live during those times because I wouldn't be able to see a thing. And I don't know how long I would have survived <laughs> with that. Wow. Um, so that really influenced a lot of my my yeses because you know while i would have loved to have seen like the renaissance and the the middle ages i don't know how much of it i would have been able to see or experience without being able to see so that was my no way any any era before glasses and i i, I really did some researching glasses were invented first glasses came about in about 1290 but again, I don't know how readily available they were. I don't think my- You didn't have your local opticians. Yeah, and my insurance back then probably wouldn't have covered my-, my It might not have even had your prescription. Do you have astigmatism, you know? <laughs> and there were definitely no contact lenses. So um, yeah, so that's, that's my, my two yeses and one no way. Uh, Eileen? Yeah, so it's interesting because you mentioned one of mine, uh, which- because you were worried about not being able to see during it. Uh, so the first one is the Renaissance. Uh, I studied history as an undergraduate student. That was my major. And any courses that I could take that had to do with the Renaissance, I, I was just in heaven. And, you know, it was the, after the Dark Ages, the medieval area, era, and um, they consider it kind of the bridge to modern civilization. But the way I, uh, so that's sort of my first uh, yay or my yes, but I also looked at it as, well, this era has some stuff that maybe I wouldn't have liked. So although it, you know, uh, promoted ca classical philosophy and literature and art and, and you know, I would have loved to have met Da Vinci, Botticelli, Michelangelo, Galileo, Shakespeare. There are so many others, Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales. But the no of the Renaissance would have been beginnings of colonialism because of the uh, trade routes that were established. Mm -hmm. and, and there was, you know, so to me, that's almost like the beginning of uh, European nations or other nations taking over other countries and the Spanish Inquisition. So although I love the Renaissance, um, there were a few of the mm, I'm not so sure about. And then my other yes would would be uh, and you talked about music. And when we were chatting beforehand, I know Joe did also the 1960s for me. I lived the 1960s. I mean, John F. Kennedy was elected. We had the Beatles, the Rolling Stones, Mot beginnings of Motown. I know that whole rock and roll era, era the civil rights movement, um, Reverend Martin Luther King's Jr.'s I Have a Dream speech, which still brings me to tears, the peaceful protests, the beginning of the women's movement. Space exploration, the first man on the moon, the 60s were it for me. And I, I learned something because I, I researched it a little bit, although I lived to the 60s because I was born in 1956. Uh, the, there were a group of MIT students. I don't know, uh, Ron and Joe, if you know this, who invented something, a game called Space War. And it's considered the first interactive video game. Oh, wow. Uh, yeah. So that makes me like the 60s even more. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah. And then the nose of the 60s were, of course, the Vietnam War, the assassinations of John F. Kennedy and his brother Robert and of Martin Luther King, violent crackdowns on student protests against the war and civil rights protests that were peaceful, building of the Berlin Wall and um, the, the crushing of the Prague Spring when Czechoslovakia was just starting to be a democratic country. Uh, although, you know, I would have loved to live those eras. There were, you know, there's always some something that's not so great. But really, for me, the no is the Gulf War or mm. any wars, but right. the Gulf War, because I lived that as a, I don't know if I, I'd say, you know, I, I was I was out of the country. I was a migrant. I was, you know, a refugee. Luckily, I was only a refugee for for less than a year. Um, most refugees can't say the same. Right. We were very blessed that um, the coalition came together and freed Kuwait. But um, there was so much trauma involved in it with my children and myself and everything. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't want to relive that that era. So, yeah. yeah. And I think yeah. I, I, I think it was a good point of I think every era, no matter what you touch, there's going to be the positives that you see, but there are also going to be those negatives, no matter what mm-hmm. era it is. Sure. Yeah, yeah, I can't imagine living through that, you know, being a refugee and, you know, and I, I know there are a lot more people who are refugees than than probably, you know, we imagine. But, um, yeah, I can't imagine living. There. And to say it, it was not a, not a long time, you know, a less than a year, that's still a decent amount of time. You know, any time I think when you're mis- displaced like that is going to feel like years, especially I would think the not knowing and just, yeah, yeah. that unknown of what's coming next or even worse like when's it coming yeah i prize what made you such a strong woman today well it certainly added to it that's yeah. true thanks for that joe yeah so joe what about uh what about you mm-hmm. so this was tough because i immediately went to like all those you know the dark ages uh the renaissance um even like not even that far back with like the industrial revolution and everything i thought those would have all been great times but ron like what you said you know with I wear contacts and my vision is horrible. My back is so jacked and now my shoulders having issues. Like I need doctors, <laughs> I need chiropractors, I need specialists. So, but I also like music. So I was thinking maybe uh, to start off with the forties um, and some of that jazz music uh, to be around to, to that uh, or to just to hear that because uh, once again, Sirius XM has a great jazz station that's based out of the 40s. And even just going through their holiday, it was holiday uh, holiday music from 40s, from artists from the 40s. Oh, it was great. And I know not a lot of people are jazz people, but I really do enjoy jazz. So I would start with the 40s because of jazz. Eileen, you took my next era. Uh, the 60s for the same idea, like the music, like, and I've seen the Stones a bunch of times, but to see the Stones in the 60s or just to have the opportunity to see the Beatles, um, <clears throat> the Almond Brothers back then, or the Grateful Dead uh, to go West Coast, to see Jimi Hendrix in New York, to see Jimi Hendrix experience do, uh, I just saw it the other day on a, on YouTube, Sgt. Pepper's Lonely Hearts Club, like two days after that Beatles album came out. Or to even see the Beatles on the top of the uh, building, like that rooftop special. Some of that stuff would have been so cool uh, to sit through. Or even the fact, uh, as a surfer, you know, to, to get into those lineups before everyone and their mother's been out there and to catch a wave in Malibu before uh, 
what's his name? Yeah, all right, all right. All right. Matthew McConaughey's now out there circling <laughs> Malibu. So, you know, <laughs> to get out there before everyone else. So the 40s and the 60s, definitely. But for my no way, I think, Ron, like as a gen, I, we're Generation X, I believe. Yep. We're considered Generation I don't know if I'd want to be anyplace else, um, you know, to I was born in 76. So, you know, I didn't necessarily see a lot of that stuff happen in the late 70s. Um, well, I, actually, I don't remember it. Uh, but but to go through the 80s um, and to see everything from the 80s now um, to, to have the opportunity to have been one of the last generations to go outside and play. And to know what it's like to have to be creative on your own and not have access to, oh, I missed that movie or I missed that TV show last night. Let me catch Survivor tonight on demand, Um, you know, to not have everything at your fingertips then growing up so you can appreciate it even more now. I don't think I'd have it any other way. Plus the access to glasses and contacts and, oh, my back's messed up. So let me go to the chiropractor. I have PT tonight. And, you know, that kind of thrown a few leeches on you. And, (laughs) (laughs) you know, Ron, like that, I don't know. I just, and that's why I started thinking, because I don't know if I complain a lot, but I definitely gripe about some issues. And I I do, I just, I guess this is what became selfish. Like I, I started to realize, man, I had it good. I have it good. And, you know, I don't think I've, I'd want to grow up in any other way or time because it definitely shaped who I am today. And I kind of like who I am today. And it took a decent amount of time to get there. But, mm-hmm. you know, like I, I, I think we were very lucky in the fact of everything we saw. Um, and, you know, Eileen, you, you focused on everything in the 60s. And I started to think like, yeah, like, you know, and, and there's still people fighting that fight. But look at how far everything's come and look at how the fight has changed to include so much more. Um, So, and like Ron, you said, there's always going to be that fight, right? There's always going to be the ups and downs of everything, but as long as there's people willing to fight the fight, um, I think that's what, that's what keeps things going. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. I I, I love the the in-depth thought that each of us put into, into them uh, um, is into a silly icebreaker. Right. Right. (laughs) Definitely Uh, thought-provoking. Thanks so much for that. We're going to pause for a second to take a little break, but we'll be back in a moment. Would you like to hear your educational book, platform, or program advertised in this spot? With the Teacher Nerd Sponsorship Program, that could happen. You can be featured on the show and help us continue to bring great content to the podcast. We offer three levels of sponsorship, including commercials voiced and produced by one of the Teacher Nerds as well as links listed on our sponsor's webpage. Visit teachernerds.com backslash sponsorship to check out some sample commercials and more information. And remember, that's nerds with a Z. And now back to the show. All right, so Eileen, can you tell us just a little bit about, you know, your journey in education and how you got to where you are, are now? So I got into education by accident, or maybe not. You know, I just thought thought of something. When I was growing up, people said that, oh, Eileen, you're so patient and uh, you're, you love school. I didn't really love school, but I did school, school really well. So everybody thought I loved school. And I used to like to play school, but I never wanted to be a teacher. And uh, the reason why I didn't want to be a teacher was because I thought you needed to be perfect because students rely on you. And if you let them down, Uh, I was just, you know, I would be devastated. 
if a student didn't succeed under my watch. So I never considered teaching. But then I, I moved to Kuwait in 1984 and uh, didn't get a job right away. I had an MBA and my degree in history and decided that I didn't want to do banking uh, here because at that time there were morning and evening uh, timings and I was starting my family and I wanted to be home for my kids. So just by accident, a friend of mine called me in 1995 and my daughter had already gone to uh, kindergarten by then. So she was in school and she called me up and she said, you know, they're starting a, a new girls school, American curriculum here. And I think she probably called me because she thought that my I'd be interested to put my daughter in. But uh, I got interested because I thought, well, that would be interesting. I, I would like to, to work there. And I had, you know, I'd have vacations with my kids. And I really enjoyed helping my, my own children at home with their homework and getting into what they were learning. Um, at that point, my, I think my son was like in fifth grade, uh, the oldest. And so I called up the school and I interviewed. And they saw that I, I really didn't have any pedagogy. I didn't have the degree in education. But as a new school, the way it works in Kuwait is you can open the school with teachers who ne don't necessarily have the proper qualifications. But then in order to keep going, the school has to make sure that the teachers do get the qualifications. So I knew at a certain point early on, I would have to figure out how I could get some kind of uh, teaching certification. And so the superintendent, who was a reading specialist, told me, I can't hire you for first and second grade because, you know, those are really the, uh, the, the basic years where you have to build the initial skills. But how about third grade? So I jumped at the chance and I said, yeah, I'd love to teach third grade. And so the school opened up in September 1996. I had seven or eight students in my class because when schools open up here with private schools, open up here, uh, they usually don't have too many new students. And I loved it. Uh, and, you know, they were all English language learners. And so I began to do research. I'm a nerd. So I love reading research for fun. And uh, I became a member of ASCD and uh, began to read uh, Carol Ann Tomlinson's work about differentiation and Grant Wiggins' uh, work with uh, backward design. And then I found out about a program at um, through the College of New Jersey, actually, huh? not too far from both of you, that was at the time was bringing professors here so that I could get my either my certification or another master's in, um, in English as a second language. And so that's what I did. I, I did the certification and Boy, I learned a lot. There's just so much to understanding um, language acquisition and the timing and the kinds of scaffolding that we can do for students. So I just fell in love. That, that became my passion. And then I became principal and I was wow. elementary principal. Yeah. After four years of teaching, I became the principal. And then in two th oh, and then my daughter came over to the school uh, when she was in seventh grade, and I I quit when she graduated uh, in two thousand eight 
because she was going to the States to study like her brothers did. And uh, I wanted to make sure I was at least in the same time zone as her if she needed to call me. <laughs> so I spent five months with my mom and dad in Buffalo while she was studying in Boston. And then when I came back, I said, oh, I really want to do professional development. I want to freelance professional development. And then I new university contacted me and said, we would really like to have you as director of the foundation English program for our college students. And so I did that. Um, and then uh, that didn't work out after about a year for various reasons. And then I ended up teaching uh, at um, another university, English uh, prep. And then I became the director reluctantly, <laughs> because I had retired and said, I'm going to really do this professional development consulting thing and opened up my own business and then ended up doing both. Uh, that's my journey <laughs> wow. in education. So yeah, I didn't mean it for, to, for it to be so long, but it was just such a long and winding road. But I'm so passionate about education now, even in my retirement, I'm still uh, supporting teachers and supporting refugee learners and teachers. I, I can't imagine not doing education or not being involved in education. And you still do uh, PD? I do. Yes. Actually, uh, I'm getting ready to launch a course on EduSparks site, their platform about self-belonging. Hopefully that'll be up and running in, in uh, January. Okay. And I mentor and coach as just when people need it, you know, if, uh, if a teacher reaches out, I, I'm here. I, you know, I think it's really important that those of us with experience and, um, yeah, you know, I'd like to do consulting and I tried it. It, uh, was difficult here. And, um, but I just, I just love finding out what's going on in the classrooms. I miss teaching actually. Yeah. So, so you were in the classroom, with third grade, you said for four years? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yeah. And then the yeah. other classroom was college age? Yes. Okay. Yeah, it was, uh, was basically they had to take an, an entrance test with a level of English. And if they didn't have the, the skills, then they needed to take a, a preparatory year of English before they were able to take undergraduate English courses. Yeah. That was really interesting, too. I liked working with the older students. Yeah. I loved the, my third graders and the elementary students, but I, I also really felt challenged by, because, you know, they're adults right. and, but they're lacking so many skills here. They're, they're really coddled here too much. Surprise. Yeah. Oh, that's surprising. I, yes. I yeah. What I thought. Yeah. So there are a lot of decision-making skills and life skills that they don't have. So it's not only just the English that they lack. There are a lot of other things that you have to sort of guide them about. All right. So I, I have to go to this question because I, I know on your podcast, you you always ask this question. Um, you ask what belonging means. So I wanted to flip it around and <laughs> ask you. Um, I don't know that on the podcast you've ever, you know, kind of given your view on on belonging. So, so tell us, what does uh, belonging mean to you? Yeah, that, that's really interesting. I, I try not to because I don't want to preempt what my what my guests are going to say or color what my guests are going to say. And I'm always so interested in what they offer. But yeah, there's a saying, home is where the heart is. 
um, which to me means that belonging begins within us, within our hearts. And so the more I've read and researched and experienced my life through this different lens of belonging, the more I've realized how important self-belonging is. And self-belonging to me is the self-worth, self-efficacy, self-confidence, self-esteem, which some people might say are all really similar, but it's not. They all sort of affect different parts of our self-concept. And so for me, self-belonging is, is really important. Unfortunately, we don't often find our self-belonging until much later. And as a result, our relationships with others is, is not as solid and healthy as, as it could be. Mm. So for me, it's, it's really where, where we feel secure within ourselves. We can have those happy and healthy relationships with friends and family or the personal belonging, I call it. And then at work, when we get into the work world, having those professional relationships or the professional belonging. So yeah, but it really starts with self-belonging. And I've become a big advocate of starting that self-belonging much earlier because I was 35 years old before I realized I lacked a sense of self-belonging. Of course, at the time, I didn't call it that. But looking back now, I realize that. And there was a lot of wasted years of being miserable as a result. And when I talk to people, I, I find that is often the case. Yeah. And I think, I mean, maybe some of that, like not having that self-belonging or, or doing that, people feel like it's almost a selfish thing mm-hmm. to, you know, reflect on yourself and worry about yourself. And, and especially even as teachers, like it's very rarely do we worry about ourselves Right. So, you know, I think some of that, that self-reflection and, and, you know, I, I still to this day struggle with, you know, what do they call it? Imposter syndrome, right? Where I, I feel like, am I just faking this? Like, do I really know what it is that I'm talking about? Or, or you know, I, I think I, and a lot of people I think still feel that way. I mean, I, I still have, I have dreams probably a few times a year where, my undergraduate university, Temple University, is calling me saying, uh, we need our degree back. Like, <laughs> <laughs> Oh, no. And I, I, I mean, but it, it's still like I'm 49 years old and I still have that, that feeling like, hey, you know, somewhere in my brain, obviously, there is something that is bringing that dream up, you, you know, and it does. It, it all, I guess, revolves around that, like, self, right? And, and self-care mm-hmm. and self-worth and, you know, all of that. It's just interesting concept. Yeah. yeah so, go ahead, Joe. I'm sorry, Eileen. So you you had mentioned you didn't come across that until you were about 35 and started to try and change it. Yes, and and it was really, um, you know, I I think one of the things is we we have to have uh, a champion in our lives in order to be able to start that journey toward self belonging. So my champion was my husband, and he. He saw things in me that I didn't see, that I never realized. And the more I, I sort of began to see things through his eyes, and the more I realized that I was miserable being miserable and making everybody, including my children and my husband, miserable around me, although they loved me, so they didn't tell me that, but I knew that. I, I felt like I had to do something. And I'm the type of person, my mother says I get it from my father. 
but I'm the kind of person that has to make a physical, intentional decision to do something before I can get started on something. I have to, it has to be a mental kind of thing. So I, I really, I, I needed to decide that I was going to look at things in a different way from a different lens. And also I suffered from depression for many years, from my teen years until, until about that time that I really started uh, understanding myself and feeling more confident. And basically what I started doing was just looking back and saying, wow, I've accomplished a lot. And I never really had celebrated any of that. It was always that negative self-talk in my ear, like you were just talking about, Ron, you know, that, did I really accomplish this? Do I really deserve this? Is this something that people should be asking me questions about? Do I really know this? And it was always that self-doubt, that that really negative. And then I started thinking, my God, my goodness, you know, I, look at all I've accomplished in this thirty-five years. So, so that that was the road. It was a it was a long road. It took a while, and it, you know, still there are times when I think to myself, "Am am I really doing what I should be doing? And am I really up to what I'm doing? You know, just just like a little bit of that imposter syndrome. It never goes away. But I I feel confident enough to jump into things without thinking about the fact that I'm not qualified anymore. So, and and I'll tell you a quick story. I had uh, a rough go of it when I became the director of the college program. And I, I knew I was coming into a very toxic uh, climate. Uh, and the, there were a lot of things that need to be done in the department as a result. Without going into a lot of detail, there were just different things that were going on. And there were people who, uh, although I had worked with them, the colleagues respected me and everything like that, weren't really happy with me becoming the director because I showed no favorite favoritism. I was uh, extremely, uh, you know, I'm a very democratic leader, so I want to have everybody's input. And some people just, you know, wanted to keep same old, same old. And they didn't like the fact that I was going to change the curriculum. All of this by the way, I was hired by the board and they wanted me to do all of these things. So I knew I had their backing. But about a year after I became the director, I was on a trip to in the U.S. Uh, to some conferences. And I received an encrypted anonymous email that nobody has to this day been able to figure out who sent it. But it was sent to all of the upper management, including the president of the university and the vice president of academic affairs. And it basically told the story about the fact that I wasn't listening to the staff, that I was doing things that I wasn't supposed to be doing. And and after a couple of months of coming back and me saying to the VP of academic affairs, we need to find out who sent this email. Um, And it was obvious they weren't going to find out. So I finally called everybody to a meeting. And I stood up in front of them and I basically said, I don't need anybody to tell me what I know or don't know, who I am, what my strengths are, you know, what things I need to improve or whatever. At that time, I was 63 or how old was I? Yeah, I guess I was 60. Anyway, I was already in my 60s. And, you know, 
I never would have been able to do that before. And I looked at each and every one of them and I had my suspicions about who was involved and so forth. But I put them on notice that, you know, this train is on the tracks. I have the backing of the board and the management. You know, the university asked me to come back in order to be able to do this. And nobody is keeping you here. So if you're really unhappy, you can leave. Isn't that, that powerful, though? Tell me that's that. Oh, how, my gosh. How, yes. You know, yes, sure but I never would have been able to do that. Well, I'm sure it's nerve wracking and, and to take the, the hoopspur, right, as they call that, <laughs> to stand up yes. there and to talk about how you feel. And, and yeah, that's 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 strong. That's powerful. Yes. Yeah. And, and, you know, I pointed out various things in the in the email that were untrue and, you know, that they had basically created. And I said, my door is always open. If you have something with me or with anyone else, you need to talk to that person or you need to come in and talk to me. I said, you know, my door is always open. So it's not as if I'm telling you, you can't come and talk to me and tell me that you're, you don't agree or this is something that you really are unhappy about. I said, there's no reason for any kind of encrypted email to come to me like that. Right. And I know they planned it because it was, you know, while I was away. So <laughs> <laughs> Because it's so much easier to, to make those comments behind closed doors yes. um, anonymously than talk to someone about a disagreement, Yes, you know, yeah. face to face. And that's, holy crap, that's a whole nother podcast. On <laughs> what the, what's wrong with the world today? It's so much easier to stroke the keys and hit mm -hmm. send as opposed to sit down and have a strong, tough conversation. That's um, true. But good for you for being able to stand up and say, look, this is this is what I think. And and even better, sometimes this is where I get in trouble because I'll say, and this is what I think about you. And this is what I think about you. <laughs> <laughs> but that's where it gets tough. So you got to be careful because then it, it, you know, I talk to Rod about this all the time. Once someone can see <clears throat> that it's personal and like that, that it's, the emotions start coming through. I feel mm -hmm. like then I lose the battle. Then all of a sudden it's, it's, it's yeah. always talking from emotion. He can't keep himself in control, but if you can do it in that controlled manner um, and not degrading, not, you know, that's where I have to mm -hmm. get in trouble because I'll sit there and listen to, I think that's what adults do. There's that two way conversation and you listen to what someone has to say, but then you should also have the opportunity to, you know, well, this is what I think. And, and even better, like, especially if you can keep it in, this is why I think it, um, which I don't know. I mean, I've never been in the position as, as a director or something. I, I think you should explain, right. Maybe why you're making a decision, but you don't have to, right. Like you said, the board wants me to do this. So this is what we're doing. You know, that, yeah. the, that explanation doesn't always have to come, especially when you're the director. Right. And if you're not, I talk to Ron all the time about this when, especially not being a part of the administrative team. You don't understand why the decisions are made. Sometimes it would be nice to be on ad hoc committees or or whatever they're called to talk about decisions. Um, but at the end of the day, right, I don't, that's not my pay grade. My pay grade is these were decisions made. This is the curriculum we're working on. Your job is now to teach the curriculum. Yeah. yeah. But the I, thing I, is, I mean, all voices should be heard. So even, I mean, we we've, uh, this is, a, I, you know, like you said, another podcast, but we were involved in changing the curriculum based on the fact that the curriculum that was in existence didn't work for our students. 
And everybody was involved in that. I had committees and everybody was involved in uh, researching and looking things up. And they all participated at some point in contributing to that. Ultimately, the decision was a small group of us uh, who, you know, who looked at everything and then presented it and said, this is what we're going to be doing, including the textbooks. But we, you know, we did get input. But I always tell, just as, a, as an aside, I always tell people when they're going into a meeting, they need to have decided what their goal is before they go into the meeting. That keeps it unemotional. So mm. if you know what your goal is at the end, where what, what you want to reach, then anything else that might get, you know, said doesn't get said because it doesn't get you to that goal. So that that might help. <laughs> it's definitely a strong a strong thought to keep in your head as you as you go through any kind of meeting like that. But of course, people will push your buttons. So yes. <laughs> anyway, that's like I said, another podcast. <laughs> um, now the, this you know kind of tails off of that a little bit, but I know for you, social media has helped in being able to create that sense of belonging. But I can also see where social media can break down that sense of belonging. Like I, I think it's it's much easier now to maybe not feel, especially for for younger students or you know uh, people in their teens or twenties, to almost not feel a sense of belonging because sometimes when you look at things on social media everybody's putting their best self out there and you're comparing what you're doing your every day to someone's best and it's you know and i think i even get sucked into that at times where you you're watching what people are posting as educators and you're like you know again you you get to that do i even know what i'm doing like uh, you know and is what i'm doing best for my students because look at what so and so is doing and i think you have to take that step back and say but they're posting their best examples, mm -hmm. right? And and I even do the same. Like I, you know, obviously you're not necessarily going to post something that was a disaster, right? Um, I mean, sometimes maybe you will. Oh, just, well, sometimes you see that, yeah. yeah. I mean, you will just to kind of let people know, like, hey, I, this was, you know, this was a disaster, and this is what I learned from it. Um, but again, I think that comparison. I mean, you 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 look over the even just stuff on the over the holidays. Right. And you see like mm -hmm. every everybody's a happy family at Christmas or at Hanukkah or Kwanzaa or whatever it is. And that's not everybody's life. Right. Like we're still in a pandemic. There are people who are hospitalized. There are people who are sick. There there are a lot of things going on. So and what do you think about social media? How how does that influence belonging? Yeah, that's so true. It's interesting because uh, I was I was talking to my daughter the other day. And she she's not very involved in on social media anymore. Um, and I said to her, I can't do that because being here in Kuwait so far away from everybody, not just my children, but everything and everybody, I, it's my lifeline. Social media is my lifeline. And you're right, Ron. Every once in a while, I have to check myself because uh, I start getting sort of into this spiral of, Oh, look what she's doing. And th that person is consulting now. And look what the kind of jobs they're getting. And they're doing that. And why am I not doing that? And then I, I immediately stop myself and say, wait, each 
And every one of us has something to contribute. And whatever we're contributing and learning and doing and supporting each other is just so important. But I, I do, I have, I have to check myself sometimes also. I, I think it's also a matter of curation, curating who you're following and who's following you and the kind of feedback that you're getting and that it doesn't all have to be positive or agreeing with you. Uh, it's good that, you know, sometimes I feel challenged, but it's also that I don't get that overwhelmed. And, you know, in terms of, you know, family and things like that, that's what started me down this spiral on, on Saturday about every, everybody's with their families and they're all taking photos and they're all together or whatever. But I know so many families whose Christmases were interrupted this year, whose New Year's are being interrupted, whose, you know, all of their holidays because various members got sick or we're in quarantine, or we're exposed, or, or just, you know, weather related, um, things like that. So no, it isn't a perfect world. And we do have to kind of remain aware of that. But at the same time, we're human. Right. And so sometimes we get caught up in, in that. Um, but I, I find I actually have to just stop myself. Yeah. And say and that I doesn't that that's yeah, I can't go down that road. Yeah. And I think, and, and we're adults, right? We're adults. I and Ron, we uh, we had done something before on digital citizenship, and and I almost feel like, you know, as a third grade teacher, this is something we should be teaching. And I know people are saying, "Oh my God, it's just something else you want to throw into the curriculum." And no, it's not something else I want to throw into the curriculum. But I think about well, what I look through, what we're supposed to be teaching with health, you know, and and. <laughs> why you know it's it's to me that is health you know because you're you're it's a huge part of your mental health so so to be able to teach that to students um so when you do see something like that you do notice like or like number one when someone's like because eileen you had said oh now this person's consulting um our buddy spencer had just decided recently to leave education and get a job with the stem program um and my first thought was oh man he's so lucky but then my second thought was you know how much work that guy puts into everything he's been doing in order to be able to kind of take that next step? Like, so as opposed to saying he's so lucky, like, man, good for him. Good for him that all that hard work and all those long hours besides teaching, just promoting yourself. And I, I, you know, he's very popular on, not popular, but he's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? He's out on Instagram a lot. He promotes himself and what they do, what he does on Instagram a lot all that extra time, you know, it's now you see like that all paid off because I guess, Eileen, you talked about it before, maybe he had a goal in mind. Um, mm -hmm. and, and he was coming from education, a whole nother, whole nother route, um, not as a teacher first, but, uh, I, it, it's just really cool to think about that. So then now here's a seven-year-old or an eight-year-old when these kids come into school, they're like, what kind of phone is that? Your phone's smaller than mine. What year is that? I, you know, or what, they have it, you know, so why not mm -hmm. teach them at an early age? Right. That, you know, it, it could be detrimental to your mental health if you don't, I guess, approach it the right way. Because social media could be, you know, a great connector or the door that's going to allow that descent into madness. If, if you allow that and, and compare yourself to what you see on everyone's Instagram account. Yeah. And I think there's a lot we can do that we 
that we can do with modeling for our students that if they see us doing things or we talk about the kinds of things that we're doing or or had tried or you know just these stories i think the storytelling is so important so it doesn't even have to be teaching it could be just that teachable moment where a student mm. says something and you say you know in my life this is what i i you know this is what happened to me so and and i think it has a lot of impact because students if we if we create those relationships with them students really want to know what we think yeah they don't remember the curriculum they remember the stories they yeah, do, they do. That's for true. sure and yeah. i think sometimes teachers are afraid to kind of bring in a personal story you, you know like you don't you don't want to but i think it's so so powerful and so impactful mm -hmm. for them it, that it's it's definitely something worth discussing um and i think also like that joe like you were talking about with spencer or eileen with you know watching people who are you know doing consulting or you know it's that you know iceberg um mm. you know diagram right like we're seeing the tip of the iceberg and there's a massive amount of work that went underneath that you know you didn't see you didn't see the long hours sitting up and you know nights where they were getting three or four hours sleep because they were doing all this stuff to promote and i mean joe i'll be honest i just i had this feeling probably two or three days ago i saw somebody post about their you know their podcast had four hundred thousand downloads this past year and i was like what am i doing like why <laughs> in the world am i even you know doing this like we're not even close to something like that yeah and you you know you start to just com again compare yourself to that but again i have no idea what the work they put in outside of what i've seen and you know it's not necessarily about just how many downloads like would it be nice 100 percent, it would be nice to have that many downloads mm -hmm. because that's going to financially impact you know us right right but we also the what we get out of talking to other people like eileen and you know all these other educators i don't know that you could pay you know a price for that you know you think about some of the people that you get to talk to one-on-one -on -one, what do they get for a keynote well that's get paid for a keynote to talk to a thousand people and you're getting we're getting that one-on-one -on -one time so yeah i mean yeah. That, it is it's all about time right i mean mm -hmm. yeah we put maybe three years into this yeah right and i think that's babyish right that's I look at how old I am now. I mean, of course I look great, but as far as how many years of wrinkles I have under my eyes, you know, our podcast is still in its elementary. And Ron, I think so are we in our educational careers. And that's what I look at, right? Like it's all baby steps. And you had talked about the, you know, the connections we've made and the people we've talked to and those opportunities that I think have made us grow as educators. And that's where Eileen, I say it all the time that, the reason I do this is because it makes me a better teacher. I mean, hands down, like, would, would, would I walk away from teaching to do this? Sure, because, you know, you're kind of on your own schedule and you're doing your own thing. But because of teaching, that's why I am able to get to do this. So I don't know if this, if, if I weren't in the classroom, I don't necessarily know how this would fly or how much weight I would have. And granted, now Ron does 90% of all the work for teacher nerds anyway. Anything you've ever seen thrown out there, 99% of the time, it's because Ron had his hand in doing it. But like without 
me being in the classroom, I don't know what, I think my experience in this podcast is everything or my, the experience I have in the classroom is what makes my hand in the podcast. Right. You know, right. and, and that's this podcast brought, Ron, I mean, I guess Southampton brought Ron and I together, but right. the podcast brings Ron and us together. You know, Eileen, the podcast brought us together, um, right. just people all around the world, which the, the pandemic, we could say it was a bad thing, but it was also, you know, on the flip side had got us the opportunity to start using Skype and using Zoom. And now we're able to have discussions with people all over the place. And it's like yeah. a normal thing. Right. Right. I think it I mean, definitely yeah, it's awesome. more comfortable to use that technology in the classroom because mm -hmm. you were using it with your every your students every day. So now to Skype a scientist or, you know, connect with another class is kind of normal almost, you know, um, and hopefully people take more advantage of it. Well, yeah, it, I hope so. Belonging, right? Yeah, I was just going to say, Ron, like that's, you know, technology is is bringing us together so we can, you know, our PLN, you would think are people right down the hall from us. You know, I, I think that would be so awesome. And not that, you know, the people down the hall from us aren't on the same page, but when I'm doing things in the social studies that are bringing in Wii Video and Tinkercad and Google Slides and videos from YouTube to try and back up the content that's kind of not just an article to read about whatever, when I'm doing that all by myself, that's tough. And, and it's great to have those ideas spark from everywhere else around the world, but it'd be freaking even better if the person on my third grade team was like, you know what, I'm into that too. Let's come to not even just to not even just the workload, but for the ideas and and the experiences, like I think, and the perspectives. That's but you know what? Like I don't let it get me down. I, I'm gonna do what makes me happy. And I had I had I feel it was my best social media post ever. One Thanksgiving I posted, I'm thankful that I don't care what anyone else thinks because that allows me to be me and you'll see the truest person you'll ever see. Like that's, and, and one time at a conference. And that's where, belonging, being well, your authentic self. I love right. it. Which, and I guess it kind of might come into play with, I don't care what other people think. I am going to say what I want, but then the, there's times where that'll come around and bite you. Like you really should have that. Is that the frontal lobe that, <laughs> that is that screener that maybe so, that you know, decision making maybe, yes yeah. the thing that's not developed until you're fully developed until you're 24 or 25 yes. but i i think part of that is is even telling yourself i i don't care what you think because you want to convince yourself that it's not important because you want to be yourself and if you're allowing other people to dictate to you what what you should be so it's it's sort of a, a way for you to be able to say, I'm not going to let you affect me because I know it's going to make me unhappy. And, and, and so I, start I, have, I have to actually say that in order for to convince myself. And then I have to go back and think, well, it's not everyone. You know, like I do care about hmm. what, you know, my parents think. I care about what my girlfriend thinks. I care about what our son thinks. So it's not that, but for, to say like, I guess the unimportant people, right? Like, I don't care what everyone thinks. Like if, if. Well, the people that, you know, really, if they cared about you, they probably wouldn't be saying those things because they would know what you want and they wouldn't be pushing you towards something that you don't want. Even as silly as, as sweatpants and sneakers. And, you know, when, when we're going out snowboarding and she says, do you like this? And I'm like, who cares if I like it? Do you like it? 
Do you like the way it feels? Is it going to keep you warm? And then two minutes later, I'm like, do you like this hat? I don't know if this hat makes me look stupid. Because <laughs> what did you just say? <laughs> We're human. But, right. Yep. It stinks being human. Sometimes <laughs> I, I like that show. Uh, oh, what's the show with uh, the guy Sheldon, the tall, skinny guy, and uh, Leonard? Uh, Big, Bang. Uh, Big Bang. Big Bang Theory. And and he's like, uh, he's no emotions. And, and, is, and I'm like, oh, God, I wish I could be that. I wish I could be just emotionless and going through, you know, the motions. But yeah, I guess that doesn't happen because we're human. Yeah, that and wouldn't I, be any fun either. Yeah, true. Yes, <laughs> <guess> not. <laughs> How did the idea of belonging and education? What? Where did the interest spark for you in the the intersection of belonging and education? Uh, the you know the more I looked into belonging, the more I realized that. I didn't have a sense of belonging all the time I was growing up through school. Like I, I was saying at the beginning, I, you know, I did school and I was very good at doing school. I was a good student, but I was unhappy at school. I was different. Um, I talk about it in my book that growing up in um, an area where there were very few uh, Jewish families and so on, you know, on the holidays that we, we need to take days off and things like that, we were docked for attendance. And I always prided myself in perfect attendance, but I always had that one or two days for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur that I had to take off, um, which I wanted to. But, you know, I felt it was unfair growing up in the 60s and the 70s. We, you know, we didn't have those holidays recognized. And just also feeling like the, the way I thought about things was different. I don't know if it was the conversations that we used to have at home. My father was a daily reader of the New York Times, and we used to have fairly intellectual discussions uh, about things, even from the time I was small. Uh, I knew what news was going on uh, when big events would happen during the 60s. Uh, we would talk about them and talk about how we felt about them. But I, I didn't always feel like I had that ability to do that in school. So the more I learned as an adult and look back and because I started blogging, that's that's how I, you know, I sort of started this whole journey to belonging as a couple of years ago, I started blogging. People were really interested in my experiences of being in Kuwait. And I started to think to myself, how am I so comfortable here? Why am I happy here as well as I am when I go back to the US, especially when I go back to Buffalo, New York, where I grew up. And the more I realized, the more, you know, became this idea of feeling really secure and safe and happy uh, with the people and in that place. And the more I reflected on Kuwait, the more I realized, well, I'm not really doing much reflecting about my early years. And when I went back and started writing about them, I realized that there were, were a lot of things that I missed out on. Um, I moved schools a lot just by the fact that I was, um, we moved a couple of times when I was little, but then when we finally settled into a house, the, where, the place it was located, I ended up in different schools. So I would spend a year here, then two years here, then a year here. I was extremely shy, if you can believe that. <laughs> and... And was a W with the Winokur name. And at the, those days, we used to sit alphabetically a lot of times. And so I was at the back of the room. And I was just very quiet. And so 
you hardly ever heard from me. And that's why ever, all my teachers were, you know, so you're so patient, you're so quiet, you know, you do school and we shouldn't have to do that. And so I've become a big advocate of we need to make sure that even our smallest, youngest students, our children need to start to understand what it is to have a strong sense of self-belonging, a self-concept that allows them to really use their voices, to make choices, um, you know, project-based learning, where they actually take something from the very beginning, an idea from the beginning, all the way to the end with just some guidance. We need to start that when kids are small. We shouldn't have to wait until we're adults. And sometimes people never feel that sense of self-belonging. And uh, so that's, that's the connection to education. And I feel there is a, a lack of, you know, even though belonging is a, a basic human need, there, there is a lot of misunderstanding about what belonging is and how we can instill that in our students, all of our students. And especially now that we're talking about um, making sure that each and every one of those children that are sitting in our classrooms and in our schools feel see themselves in the literature, see themselves in the different subject matter, can speak openly about what they're feeling, learn how to express those big feelings so they don't have those mental health problems. So yeah, I mean, and, and there are children who, as a result of having experiences in school, being marginalized because of their gender, their, uh, you know, their ethnicity, gaps in education, language learners, um, you know, the LGBTQ plus, they end up suffering trauma as a result. And oftentimes, they end up dropping out of school, or just doing school to get through it, but not really, really taking the best of it. And so for, for this reason, I, I've become a really big advocate that we, we need to look at that whole sense of belonging, the social emotional uh, in, in a broader sense and model it. And then not only that, not only for our students, but also for the teachers. It, it pains me terribly to read posts by teachers who feel that they are, um, they're, they're so overwhelmed, so fatigued, so um, put upon the administrators who feel their hands are tied and they can't, you know, do the kinds of things that they want to. You know, we know what schools should be. We know what education should be. And it isn't what we're doing right now in a lot of cases. And how do we break out of that? Right. There are, there are a lot of movements toward it. But if we aren't listening to the teachers who are in the trenches, then we're really missing a big part of making those changes. We call about, talk about school reform, but you can't do it without the voices of the students. And that's, that's my one word for this year. Do like, so you say, how do the teachers do it? Wow. Do something, do one thing. Right. And, and I think we started, we were lucky because we got on this train a couple of years ago um, through the podcast, through our, through our district, through our uh, administration, <clears throat> coming on board with social emotional learning years ago, even before I think the pandemic hit. And we, we were lucky enough to, to start to, I guess, have the door open for us to see what avenues teachers could take down there. Um, so just start to do it, you know, pick something. <laughs> and we say it a lot, you know, as teachers, how many teachers are in a building? How many administrators are in the building? So if you think something's going to work, you do it. 
And a lot of times if administrators come in and they don't know you're doing it, they're like, why didn't you, this is great. Why didn't you tell me? You know, because most of the time you're doing it for the right reasons. Now, if it's close the door and watch a movie so we don't have to do anything. No, that's not what you do. But, you know, there's there's research out there that talks about how social emotional learning can help that child learn, because if they are upset about something, if they are hungry, why do they care if two plus two is four when they're worried? Am I going to get fed later? Or, I'm, you know, they're worried. Who knows if mom's going to be there later? Who knows if dad's going to have to pick up? You know, there's so much, I think, going on now with students or they're more so than there was. Or they're feeling marginalized in the classroom, being bullied or or whatever. The the thing that I I, I hope teachers like yourselves, you, you both of you, who are doing the different kinds of things in your classrooms, and and I and I see I see it all the time. Even if the other teachers aren't doing it, and often I hear teachers saying that that they feel that if they try those kinds of things, what they know is right. And what they know works and interests their students and really produces the learning. They're afraid that if they do that against the grain or the, against what, what is there in the curriculum or what is being told at the staff meetings or whatever, that that, that will create a problem for them. But I just want to tell everybody, the bigger problem that's created is you're not being your authentic self. If you know, just like Ron, just like Joe was just saying, if you're not doing what you know is right, I think that's one of the main reasons why so many teachers are are planning on leaving or have left education is because they walk into the classroom and they feel like they're, they're not doing what they know they should be doing. And they're letting their students down just like I felt like I was going to do. And so I was constantly pushing the envelope in my classroom, but I had the self-confidence to think, well, if they don't like it, you know, they, they can tell me so, and I'm still not going to change it because I know that it's working. And the proof is in the students are interested. The students are learning. The students are doing well on whatever assessments I have to give them. And in just having that self-confidence that, that realization, that self-efficacy, that I'm not an imposter. I know this is working and I can do this. And in spite of the fact that the rest of my team doesn't believe in it, and maybe they're telling me that I shouldn't be doing it, go ahead and do it anyway. So yeah, thanks, Ron, uh, Joe, for that. Yeah. And I think, I mean, we have definitely, Joe and I, like in our district, we've been lucky where the administration has been really supportive of, you want to try something? Try it out. Let's, you know, let's see what happens from it. You know, again, I applaud them for that. Our, our current superintendent a couple of years ago when she was made, was she just on as our, curriculum. I, I think, yep. She just came on as our curriculum director. We were sitting at um, a Texpo luncheon with her and it was Ron, another teacher. And I, I'm like, I would be scared to death to have anyone come in. And I think we would just gotten into making. So this was like four or five years ago and we had sat oh, wow. through a making exhibit. And I, I was, I, I said flat out, I would be deathly afraid to say, hey, you guys want to come in? I've never tried this before. Let's see what happens. And now it's almost like every time we do one of these lessons, it's like, all right, guys, I don't know how this is going to go. Um, we're going to do it. And, and that I think that's the best way to run the classroom. I love the fact that the kids see that and be like, all right, because now when I ask them, 
try it. I think they're more willing to be like, you know what? Let's see what happens. If it works, great. If it doesn't work. So that kind of mentality, I think, has changed in, in myself just because now it's I do I don't mind reaching out and saying, hey, you know, for our my one observation, we planned this whole thing and <clears throat> I had planned it to last a week. It lasted like four weeks, but she, the, the administrator came in on that first day. She's like, this is awesome. I think it's, there's not enough time. I'm like, I know there's not, but it, it, it started that conversation. And I think that's, ha- you know, having an administration that is supportive and, and what's the word, um, you know, that's out there and, and is, is seeing what's relevant as, as far as the research. I mean, that's huge. And I think as a, if you don't have that, then as a teacher, maybe you, you bring that to the table. And, you know, we, we talked to a superintendent, Glenn, uh, who says, you know, give me a reason uh, or what's he say? Make it so I can't say no. How, how are the kids going to benefit? Because it's that back to that Maya Angelou quote, if you know better, you should do better. And if the research says this is, you know, do, working in column A will produce results from column B, then you should do what's in column A. If column B has the results, you want the kids, you know, to be free thinkers and uh, positive mental uh, images of themselves and, you know, to be able to get out. I guess at the end of the day, I tell the parents all the time, I don't care about third grade. I want them to be successful in life. And if I can implant things now early on in third grade and then they support them in fourth grade and have them grow in fifth grade, to me, that's my vision. You know, who cares about third grade? Third grade's a fun year. Why crush it for them? Why make, why give them a homework reading log and make them read for 30 minutes? Because the research says that's what makes kids hate reading. And if, you know, to bring it back to belonging, to be able to find that community of, of I guess, or that district that backs up what you think. That's, and Eileen, like you said, if, if the administrators aren't into it, and you know it's right, then you do it. And if and if that's not the district for you, if that's not the business for you, if that's not the place for you, then that's okay because what you're doing has the merit. And I always bring it back to the research that backs it. Why why don't you give homework? Because homework stinks. And it says if the kids that do well in homework don't need homework and they're going to fly through homework, why give them that worksheet that you're going to give everyone? I know I'm kind of getting on to off topic. Um, <laughs> no, I think, well, for me, it's all related, but I, th- I think it's really important that we remember that we're, we're, we're in there for, for making ourselves happy with what we're doing. So we, we need to be honest with ourselves about what we know is going to work. And we know it's going to work because it's working for our students. And we as educators are in there because of our students and everybody else should you know, hope will hopefully learn from us, but you have to have that self-confidence, that self self-concept first. So yeah. And I think it also makes you when when you're doing that and kind of maybe going a little bit against the grain or not with the the norm, it makes you a more reflective teacher because you're then looking back and go, all right, this didn't work. Why didn't this work? What can I do? Maybe it, it wasn't the right concept to bring into my classroom. So you become a much more reflective teacher in the long run, which is mm-hmm an ideal thing for any educator to be reflective. If so, bringing that topic or bringing that into schools, how would you, what are some of the best practices that you think are to bring that sense of belonging into schools or or give students um, that sense of belonging? Because I I definitely see 
in some students in our school, like I am so happy to see some students come out at eighth grade as transgendered and be comfortable to come out and say, yeah, this, this is who I am. And, and I think in, in our district, I mean, we have kids who are very supportive using, you know, that student's pronouns and being careful about using that student's pronouns so that other students can hear them using the correct pronouns. And so like, what is it, what, what are some things that, you know, can help bring that sense of belonging in? Right. Yeah. That, even just asking what, what each of our pronouns is, has become something that's, that's really important and then trying to use them. But yeah, there are, are so many things that, that we can do from day one. It's just making sure that we're at the door, welcoming them and that not just into the classroom, Students should walk into the school building and immediately feel that sense of belonging. They shouldn't have to walk all the way through the school until they get to their classroom to feel that sense of belonging. So that climate, that school climate, that sense of belonging needs to be school-wide, not just in my classroom. And then when I get to the classroom, I, I, you know, I want to be greeted. And I see teachers do greetings in different ways or whatever. It could be just simply standing at the door and saying hello. But there's, some, you know, some teachers who will be sitting at their desks still planning or worrying about what they're doing for the day. And understandable, teachers are so pressured with all the things they have to do, not just teaching, but all the administrative things and everything. But just those couple of minutes meeting those students where they, you know, as they come in the door at the beginning of your class or first thing in the morning, depending on what level you're teaching. And then creating those relationships, creating class norms making sure that students have the ability to contribute to the class norms. And I, I like to call them norms instead of rules, because rules seems like something that's been imposed on you, whereas norms are something that we agree to uh, by consensus. Having routines is something that's really, really important because students need to know what the teacher expects from them. What are the expectations of the teacher? What expectations do I have from the school? Um, parents want to also know that too. Communication, making sure there's regular communication with students and with parents so they know what's going on. And just creating that atmosphere for uh, team building and respect within the classroom. You know, uh, the, both of you do making in the classroom, which entails a lot of time uh, for them to have be creative with ideas, to talk to each other, to maybe sometimes get a little bit louder. They're working in teams or in groups or in pairs. All of that has to be structured so that students know what their expectations are. So if I'm working in a group, what am I expected to do? What are the others expected to do? To have respect for each other, respect for the teacher, teacher modeling all of that out in the hallway, not having those conversations that sometimes students overhear about different students or teachers, you know, um, feeling unhappy about whatever's going on in the school, which these days, lots of stuff, uh, all of that has an effect. And then being honest, if we make a mistake, you know, students were always really surprised when I own up to something that I did that I wasn't supposed to do or I got wrong or whatever. It was like, Miss, really? Are you, you know, saying that you got something wrong? Yeah, I'm not, I'm not perfect either. You know, it's it's okay. And then just listening, listening for understanding and listening to stories, 
So making making the 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 climate, the environment in the classroom so that everybody feels a sense of safety. And it's not just the the physical safety, but also the the psychological safety so that they're willing to share their stories and being uh, accepting and inclusive and making sure that if somebody doesn't want to share a story, it's okay too. Right. And I think that the, the greeting at the door, like it, it may seem so simple and, but it, it, it has such a huge impact on, mm-hmm. on things like, and, and I think our, our admin team, our, our principal and vice principal are very good at when the door is open for the building, at least one of them, if not both of them, are standing there greeting the students as they're coming in. Um, and that I know that's not always. Um, and I've gotten into the habit this year of at the end of the period before students go, and and you know it gets giggles and things like that. But I'll tell them, hey, remember I love y'all, like on the way out. And you know, so middle school, that's like, did he just say I love you? Like, it, you know, it's all <laughs> weird, but. You know, and I tell them in the beginning, like, I'm going to say this every day as you leave, because I want you to know, I care about you. That's why I'm a teacher. I care about you. I care about each and every one of you as you leave here. And if you didn't hear I love you today, at least you're going to hear it in my class. If you didn't hear it from someone at home or somewhere else, right? Like, and again, it gets giggles here and there. But then you start to start to have kids say, you didn't say I love you. Like when you're so obviously it makes an impact that you know, you pointed it out that I forgot today or, you know, we got so rushed that I I didn't and I make sure I do. You know, simple things like that, you know, means so much. Yeah, they'll remember that for sure. Yeah. And I know, Joe, like you're big into like norms and. Well, even our our classrooms called Chilling with Ideas and the kids came up with that four years ago and the kids voted on it like every and it's and then the kids vote on you know, what, what are the kids called? Cause for a while I was calling, referring to everyone as guys, like, Hey guys, what's up? Hey guys. So then the students came up with uh, chilies and then they even decided how to spell it. Cause there was two chilies, different spellings. And then we decided the kids that are no longer in the class, they're chillers and, and the current. So it's, it's wow. that sense of community. I know it's all. And, and to hear all this, I'm like, damn, this is, this is our classroom, but it's, it is. So they come by and like, I'm like, hey, chillers, what's up? And, you know, sometimes there is, you know, if if you were in the class, not only do you get a high five, you get a high five in the fist bump. And and I remember when that first year, when that all that started and the chilies were coming in and they try and do the fist bump and I would intentionally miss them. And I'd be like, <laughs> what, what's going on? Where's your, you're not there yet. And then that's became the thing. You're not there yet. Like, cause I would tell the kids like, we're not friends. Like, I love you guys. And, and there, I would take a bullet for each one of you, but we're not friends. Like see this tie and the tie's never there anymore. I'm like, this sets the boundary. And now once you leave the classroom, now we are friends. Like it's a whole different relationship. And that's really hard for an eight year old to comprehend. Like, what do you mean? You don't like me. Like, I love you. I don't like you. I love all of you, but we're not friends. Like I'm here to do a job. And that's tough because I know the kids feel loved in the class. Cause a lot of them want to hug. And I'm not a, I don't even like hugging my old son. That's just a joke. I love hugging my son. Um, (laughs) But, you know, like as, as a male teacher in an elementary school, I don't hug the kids and I don't think it's appropriate for me to hug the kids. And that's, that's how I feel. Like, I'm not saying it's not appropriate for other people to hug kids, 
kids need hugs, just not for me because I'm not a hugger. And there's times where I, I, I say, whoa, whoa, Mr. Powell doesn't hug. Mr. Powell is a high fiver. And there's times when those kids will tackle you for hugs. Um, and if that's the case, then, you know, you give them a little hug and say, all right, now get away because girls and boys have cooties. And Mr. Powell doesn't want to catch cooties. But I think my personality allows. But they know. See, they, they understand. They know because you've talked about it. You've told your own well, story. Yeah. And and I think sometimes talking about it, uh, I used to refer to uh, my girlfriend as Dylan's mom all the time because I didn't think saying girlfriend was appropriate. I had a little boy, smart boy. You know, he was like, wait a minute. You call her Dylan's mom, but aren't you married? And I said, no, Varna, we never got married. And his response was, don't you need to be married to have babies? And I went, that's a health question. <laughs> We're in social studies at the time. And then I had to call home and say, hey, listen, <laughs> this is what Varna, and then the mom's like, oh, I'm so sorry. I said, no, I think that's adorable. I That innocence is one of the things I love about third grade. Um, and we actually had a parent. There's still um, that innocence. Yeah. Well, yeah, they, yeah. he didn't make that connection. But that's awesome that you called his mom to let him to let well, her know. I told parents at back to school night when one of the parents asked, yeah. are you going to be discussing anything controversial in class? And I said, well, I hope not, was my initial response. And I laughed. And I thought, well, you know, with everything that's going on today and, you know, kids really will say anything in class. If things are said, yes, I will. I will address topics. I said, but just be made assured if we have to address topics in class, everyone will be getting emails home saying, hey, this is what happened. And, and it might even be followed by a phone call that says, hey, I know you got the email. <laughs> Let me specifically tell you what happened with your son or daughter. Um, mm. Because, you know, I think in today's climate, it's good to have open conversations. But but what you're having conversations about, some people at home might not want those conversations to be happening. Right. So I try and make it very transparent with the parents. Like, I'll never tell the kids, this is who I think people should vote for, or this is how I think things should happen in today's world. Like, I'll never give my opinions, but I will talk about things um, that are age appropriate. And let's be hard. Sometimes in third grade, that's really tough. It's really mm -hmm. tough to keep it at age appropriate. Uh, so then, you know, like, guys, this is where we shut it down. And if do we want, know what is age appropriate anymore? I mean, I think well, we used to, but I'm not even really sure about that right now. But I yeah, guess it depends right on, on older siblings at home and, and, you know, people there's, we have kindergartners now on the bus with eight, eight, eighth graders. So, mm -hmm. right. What would, and, and with social media, right. What kids are yeah. seeing and even on parents, social media, it's, it's mm -hmm. social media is very telling, I think with, how people want to be portrayed and the reality of things. Mm -hmm. um, so, yeah, I, I guess it's at eight years old, eight years old today is not the eight years old uh, when, when I was, which is, eight which is kind of unfortunate because, you know, there was so much innocence, but it, I guess they're, they're exposed to so much and have so much available to them. It's, it's hard to know, but they should be kids for mm -hmm. a while too. Most, most definitely. And, and that innocence is still there. It's just, mm -hmm. it's not as, they're not all innocent and at, <laughs> at eight years old. Um, but it is good to be open and, and talk. And we start those morning meetings every day with, and I, and I tell you what, it, at, in third grade, I figured we were done with morning meetings and it's not the case because it's, it's valuable time spent. Yeah. That's, that's another, that's another, uh, a plus, you know, for, for creating a sense of belonging is having a, you know, a regular, sort of family meeting 
classroom meeting, even if it's just for five, 10 or 15 minutes around a certain topic or something like that, or just giving them the opportunity to checking in with them. How are they doing? Yeah. It it doesn't have to be something because I know schedules are pretty tight, but you can, you can definitely put that into your schedules. I always feel so bad when an administrator has to do an observation first period because our first period starts at 837, but we definitely don't start you know, the reading at 837, because that's yeah. one of the beautiful things about third grade. It's we're not set to the bell like Ron would be in the middle school right? or as yeah. a special teacher in, in the elementary school. Eileen, you mentioned your book. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's Journey to Belonging, Pathways to Well-Being. And, you know, when was that released? It was just December, right? Uh, beginning of November 2021. Yes. So can you give us just a little like what the book is about for listeners who, who might want to pick it up? Yeah, I've mentioned bits and pieces of it during our conversation, but it basically started out um, about three years ago with me blogging about my experiences in Kuwait because people that I, I had met at conferences and and just people in general wanted to know how I felt so comfortable being here and having lived here since 1984. And uh, I, I really began to, to delve into the fact that, you know, I learned the language and, and all of that. So, so the blogging then led to my podcasting and I began learning so much from, from teachers and began making that connection to education that we also talked about. And uh, I realized that I really wanted to, to put it all into a book. Um, I said I needed to reflect also on my early years so part of it is my story uh, and my sense of belonging and how that began and my journey and how that began. And then a little bit of the theory, because I think that's really important for um, everyone to understand uh, about Maslow and uh, about, um, you know, just what what is belonging. Um, I, I talk about uh, Brene Brown's work. And uh, some other psychologists, there's a little bit in it about trauma and bullying, um, LGBTQ, and um, all, all of that, and, and language learners. So all of that is in there sort of alongside my, my stories. But I've broken it up into um, self-belonging, personal belonging, professional belonging. And then there's a chapter about becoming a good ancestor. What legacy are we leaving to uh, those who come after us? What kinds of things are we doing right now? Some of the things we've talked about during this podcast, what are we doing right now to make, to make others uh, lives better? And uh, what do we want to be remembered for? So that that whole idea of self-actualization, but self-actualization that Maslow meant wasn't something that was independent and selfish. It was, well, how am I self-actualizing my passions in order to benefit my community? And it's it's something, unfortunately, that's missing a lot from from our our nowadays as we get caught up in uh, the modern part of the world and keeping up with everybody on social media. But I'm I'm hoping that um, all of those things kind of come together, and the people who have read it and uh, reviewed it or just have sort of given me feedback say that a lot. A lot of different things have resonated with them when they've read it. So, um, and I'm working on a companion book right now. Actually, it's a, a workbook because I really want to be sure that there are there are 
there's one chapter that has just a couple of lessons I mentioned, but I really wanted to go into more depth for teachers who want to be doing some things in their classrooms. And I also have uh, a number of really amazing educators who contributed lessons and activities. So hopefully that'll be out sometime in the spring of 2022. Wow, that'd be great. Mm -hmm. And yeah. where where is the, the books available on Amazon and kind of all over the place? Mm -hmm. Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and edumatchpublishing.com. Uh, I think it's edumatchbooks.com. Uh, they, they published it, Dr. Sarah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. awesome. So, so it's available on their website too. Very good. And so, as we kind of wrap up, where where can people follow you on social media? So, I am on a lot of different social media. Very active on Twitter. So, I'm at Eileen Winokur on Twitter and also Instagram. If you search Eileen Winokur on Facebook, you'll find me there also. And I'm on LinkedIn, and I use each media for for different things. So. Yeah, uh, I'd love to hear from people and I love connecting with everybody. Uh, like I said, it's my lifeline and my PLN is part of my belonging. And uh, I talk about that in the book too. And so if you could give one parting like thought on belonging, what would, what would that be? Well, you know, I said uh, belonging is a basic human need. And as we go through this pandemic and the trauma that it has really put us through, uh, the bumps in the road that we face in our lives, um, we really need to build that sense of self-belonging uh, within ourselves. And as I mentioned, we shouldn't have to wait until we're adults or never to feel that sense of self-belonging. And so let's do the, you know, it's, it's not a lot, it doesn't take a lot of time in the classroom. Find somebody in your life who is, sort of your mirror and like my husband was for me who kinds of sees those things that we just don't see in ourselves for whatever the reason and and have good conversations with that person and then then take that information and say you know I can do this and start reminding yourself whenever you doubt yourself your worth your self-efficacy, that you're able to do something, people start poking at you and saying, you shouldn't be doing that, or you shouldn't be wearing that, or you shouldn't be looking like that, uh, or talking like that, and say to yourself, you know what, I know that I've done this, and I have been successful before, and I can do this again. And just be your authentic self, because otherwise, you're going to be really unhappy. Don't live unhappy. I lived miserable for many, many years. Don't live miserable. <laughs> Isn't it a shame that that has to be said? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Isn't that a shame? I mean, I'm so glad that you're no longer living miserable. But man, to have to, I mean, I, I don't know if I was, I mean, I, you know, I, <laughs> therapy, right? Therapy is huge. And, and I guess you said talking about it and, and having that other person to keep those conversations going. But I hate that. I hate mm -hmm. the fact that to hear you say, don't live miserable and that you live miserable. That's horrible. Yeah. I'm, you know, it, it, a lot of it has to do with our, um, our physiology, which I, I, I mentioned in the book and, uh, uh, you know, is, is really important to me is this whole idea of, of when we see people, our first reactions are, are with our autonomic nervous system. Are, we, don't even, we don't even sense them. We sense them, but we don't know we're sensing them. They're automatic. 
So the facial expressions, the way, way we're speaking, our tone of voice, um, all of that affects us. And so, you know, if we're unhappy, I, I used to walk into the school building and if I was unhappy or having a bad day, I knew that I know I was going to have more problems with the teachers when I was principal. I, the students were going to be, you know, there were going to be more incidences of problems with the students. If I was unhappy at home, I knew that I was going to have more discipline problems with my kids. So it's like, you know, aha, there's a connection there. So, yeah. yeah. And be happy uh, in life. Be happy in life. We do. Yeah. Be your authentic self. And you know what? It's okay. People don't don't have to like you said, Joe, people don't have to like you. You know, people don't have to agree with you. If you feel that what you're doing is right and it's working, um, whether it's in school, in your classroom, or whether, you know, as, as an adult, it's, it's you know, at home, in your relationships or whatever, um, and just be willing to listen to others about why they, they think that it isn't working. And you always if you, talk if about- If you feel you have that respect for the other person, then, then listen to them and try to understand why they're, where they're feeling that way. And you talk about self first, right? You, you feel it in yourself first and everything else hopefully will fall into place. It will. I guarantee it. After almost 66 years of life, I can almost guarantee that if you're feeling good in yourself as you're as as and you're living your passions, you're you're living the things you're doing, the things that you really love to do and you know that it's working and it's not harming anybody else, then, yeah, everything else falls into place. And, it's you know, it's that perfect world. There are some days that are good and some days that are bad and we do fall back. But we pick ourselves up much quicker than before. And I think sometimes just the not, like you said, you may have ups and downs and not fighting the downs, right? Like it mm-hmm. sometimes, you know, the, the, the saying, it's okay to not be okay sometimes, right? Like not so fighting good. that I have to be happy. I have to be, you know. It's okay to be sad. Right, right. You, you know, like um, one of our family members just, you know, found out that she has, her, a breast cancer has recurred. And her her daughter said the other day, she's like, I'm tired of people telling me, don't worry. She's like, I, 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 at this moment in my life, I need to worry. And I, I need to be concerned. And I, I need to be okay with worrying for a little bit. And, and I'll get out of it. And I'll, you know, things will happen. But at this moment, this is what I need for myself. I, I need to have that little bit of worry and be okay with it. You know, so and that, I love that she was able to express that big feeling. Right. Exactly. Not all of us can do that either. We need to learn early on how to express those big feelings. So yeah. good and, for her. Yeah. yeah. And again, that's, that's definitely, uh, she learned that from her mom, <laughs> for sure. Yeah. You know, other people are saying, don't worry, they're, they're trying to make you feel better, but they well, don't understand that, that that's not really helpful. And so, so being sympathy, able to tell right? those people, yeah, being able to tell those people, Thank you very much. I, I'm sure you think you're helping me, but it's not. Right. Yeah. 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 That's so important. Well, I mean, I can't thank you enough for, for spending time with us. And, it, you know, uh, it was definitely time zones. You know, us ha- being on Christmas break now definitely <laughs> helped us with that's some true. time zones. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I appreciate it. I know it's been difficult for us to schedule, especially when, when you're both teaching. So yeah. thank you very much. This has been fantastic. Phenomenal podcast. Awesome. Awesome topic of conversation. I feel like this could be a reoccurring yeah. uh, podcast almost. Well, I mean, there's so much to talk about. 
it is for Eileen, right? This is right. this is your podcast. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> so, yeah. Tell everybody what what your podcast is, so everybody can find it. Sure, it's uh, Journeys with an S to Belonging, and it's on all of your favorite uh, podcast platforms. And I uh, interview amazing guests every week, uh, including both of you. And it's been really, I've learned so much from each and every one of the people that I've talked to in the last two years. So it's, it's, it's really, it's really gratifying. Um, so at times I've thought to myself, do I want to keep doing this? And I said, yeah, I do. Just like the two of you. Yeah. It's important to me because I learned so much. And if nobody listens, doesn't matter because, um, because, Yes, yeah. And I know there are people listening. They there are, but it doesn't have to be four hundred thousand. It'd be nice. <laughs> right. Exactly. I know it's not. <laughs> awesome. Thanks so much, both of you. Thank you, Ron and Joe. Teacher nerds, teacher nerds, knocking on your door. Open up, let's take your teaching further than before. Give it a try, don't be shy, there's nothing there to lose. Worst thing that happens, kids get pain on their shoes. We're talking teacher nerds. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of the Teacher Nerds Podcast. Keep up with every new episode by subscribing on Apple Podcast, Spotify, Google Podcast, Anchor, or anywhere you listen. When you subscribe, be sure to give us a review and tell a friend. Visit us at teachernerds.com. Follow us on Twitter at teachernerds, on Instagram at teachernerdspodcast, or email us teachernerds at gmail.com. And remember, we're nerds with a Z. Most importantly, thank you for listening and becoming one of the teacher nerds.